This episode of the Bucktails podcast is brought to you by Pistol Creek and Trip Sporting Goods. Oh, good blood. All right, that's some good blood here. Yeah. Look at that. Good deer, babe. Welcome back to the Bucktails podcast. This is your host, Eli Self. I have on with me today the honey badger, Randall Tharp. And I, I am going to ask where that nickname came from, uh, and I know people have called you that for a long time, but Randy, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man, I, it has been a very, very long time, uh, too long, but it's good to see you again, it's good to talk to you again, look forward to catching up. Yes, sir. Yeah, so uh, I met Randall, I fished with him one day on Lake Gunnersville, and he's, you know, for sure a hammer over there. But I was on a trip with the, the United Special Sportsmen's Alliance, ran by Bridget O'Donohue. And what that is, I don't think I've talked about that on the podcast before. Maybe I have. But um, it's an organization that lets kids with terminal illnesses or life-changing ailments, you know, I've got the physical disability, go on hunting trips, fishing trips. So I got to go to Gunnersville a few times, and I got to fish with Randall Tharp. And you were still kind of in the double a triple a level i guess you'd call it at that point in time and i think me and my grandfather fished with was it you and your dad who we fished with that day i, I you know i think it i think it was I, I i do remember there being four of us in the boat and i do remember you catching some on a big 10 inch zoom worm so i, I remember uh, like a plum worm if i'm not mistaken yeah, I think it was either. Yeah, I believe it was plum or maybe tequila sunrise. It may have been plum, one of the one of those colors. But yeah, that was. Uh, I watched. Uh, I watched you flip into holes in the hydrilla, and just pull out three and four pounders left and right. I remember coming back home and being like, "Man," I was telling my buddy Ethan, "I was like, dude, he was he fished like just ever so often. And he had probably a twenty pound bag just goofing off, and I'm and I'm back there fishing my heart out. And you know, we we caught a lot of fish." But it was just like you were, it was effortless. You knew exactly where to pitch it and you'd pull up a three and a half, four pounder every other cast, it seemed like. I mean, it was, uh, it was an honor to watch, uh, you that day. And I'm, I was thankful to meet you. And I think I ran into you again. I think it was at one of the classics on Hartwell. You were in, I think you were still with Halo at the time, but we stopped by there and you were looking over the handle of a reel or of a rod, designing it or something. And it was pretty neat. Uh, I ran into you there. I think that's the last time I ran into you, you know, face to face. But it's, yeah, it's been way too long. Yeah, those two dates were quite a bit apart there. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that was during my probably elite series career. And if it was at the Hartwell Classic, the one Casey won, I never forget that one's the coldest I've ever been fishing in my life. I think it was six degrees the first morning of that tournament. Days like that, you don't forget. Yeah, good old, uh, good old Georgia, South Carolina winters. It could be seventy or it could be five. There's really no in between, and you don't know what it's going to be. Um, yeah, definitely got to layer up. It could be really cold and get hot in the afternoons. Layers are, layers are your friend down here in the south. That's right. That's why I live in a. I don't live in South Florida. I live up in the Panhandle. But uh, our winters are not quite as harsh as as yours. Yep, good old Port Saint Joe. Yeah, I think we've tried to. We've tried to meet up down there because we go to uh, Cape Sandblast vacationing almost every year. And I know y'all are not too far from there. But, uh, but yeah, man, uh, thanks for coming on. I'm pumped to get into some things. I've got a little bit of an outline here, but not too much. Usually just let it kind of flow where it goes. But uh, 
first thing I have written down other than how we met is the honey badger nickname. How, who came up with that or like, where did that come from? Why are you called the honey badger? And I think, is it your logo, like a badger, like your Randall Tharp logo? Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be honest when I first, when people started calling me that I wasn't very fond of it, but once once Mercer and Zona got a hold of it, there wasn't any turning back. So I just decided if that's what they're going to call me, I might as well own it. And, uh, you know, my jigs, my rods, my reels, everything that I sell with my name is branded that way. And it's kind of a cool logo. So, uh, you know, it really wasn't something I asked for. It, my Actually, the name goes back to my FLW days. And uh, a guy that used to cover our tournaments, he still – uh, covers my tournaments now at Major League Fishing is Rob Newell. He's an on-the-water reporter. He he's does photography. He's a writer. Uh, does, you know, he's the talent at ML, MLF, you know, given the weather reports, given on-the-water updates. But he that is where the nickname came from. My good buddy Rob, who I became friends with Rob probably early 2000s. He, he was covering a tournament that I won, and ever since then we've been really good friends. And you know, he watched my career progress through the years, through FLW, through fishing BFLs, and and then through the tour, then the Elite Series, and uh, the Honey Badger. If you if you look it up on YouTube, is a pretty viral. The first video is going to come up is is the Honey Badger narration by Randall. Well, the Randall's not me, but if you'll watch that video and you look at how that might pertain to bass fishing, that's how I got the nickname. Uh, I had a I had a lot of years. I had a really good run at Lake Okeechobee. A lot of top tens. Won a lot of tournaments down there, and that's kind of how I got the, the nickname was from that video and how I kind of looked like the honey badger running around at Okeechobee, kind of you know setting people up. I knew they were watching me. They were kind of mooching off of me, and I would just always just you know persevere in the end. The honey badger's a pretty mean, nasty critter. And, uh, but that's, that's thanks to my buddy, Rob. I've been now, now it's my brand. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's funny. Um, but no, that's, uh, I'd Googled the honey badger and saw what, you know, what it was. I did, I did not see the, uh, the video on YouTube you're talking about, you know, that the one that was, uh, you know, talked over by Randall. I, I didn't see that video. But, um, no, that's hilarious. But and I figured that was what it was. It was a, t a certain tournament or something like that. I didn't know exactly which one it was. But, and I figured, uh, Dave Mercer and Mark Zona probably had something to do with it. Once you're at that level, if, if they call you something, they're going to run with it. Those are some funny, funny guys. I listened to both of their podcasts. They're hilarious. But, uh, Really, really good guys too, and my buddy Rob too. Like I, of the, I fished with Zone. I've never fished with Mercer. I fished with Rob a handful of times every year down here where I live. But uh, you know, it's cool to to build those relationships uh, through fishing. Uh, it's probably the thing when I walk away from this that I'm gonna miss the most is just the people I've met over the years, and, and a lot of my best friends. You know, are guys I compete against, and uh, you know, not seeing those guys you know, for half the year is what I'm going to miss the most about this when I'm done. No, for sure. I, I can't imagine because you guys are, I mean, practically all roommates. There's, what, 80 of you on the Bass Pro Tour, so y'all are together for a substantial amount of time, you know, on the water, off the water. 
media stuff throughout there all if y'all you know have little expos and red crest things like that i mean y'all are yeah I mean, that's a, it's a brotherhood and then as long as you've been doing that how long have you been a full-time pro do you think i think this year uh was my 15th year so i started in 2008 uh next yeah. next year will be 16 years that this is all i've done it's been my you know sole source of income um, you know, I, I made a lot of money fishing bass tournaments prior to that, uh, you know, just fishing regionally. Uh, but, but I had a job and, and, you know, my wife had a, had a job then too. And I think I'd done this two or three years where she was, she made enough to pay our bills, whether I caught one or not. And, but since then for the last 12 years, I've been supporting us both. And, and my wife's a huge part of my business now. And, I mean, this is her office. I mean, you might see some of my trophies in here, but this is her office. She let me up in here because it's the quietest place in the house. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I see some of your trophies back there for sure. Uh, but no, that's that's something that I brought up a, a long time ago to my buddies is whenever your wife was able to go on the road with you. I think that is a huge part of being able to be a pro because I've told my wife before. I'm like, if I, I mean, not saying I'm anywhere near good enough to be a pro, but that would be that would be very very tough if your spouse and or family wasn't with you on the road. I mean, I don't I don't know how guys do it that have teenagers at home that are in high school and not, and don't see them don't see them that often. I mean, that's tough. So for you to be able to have your wife with you and she helps you out for sure on the road, I mean that's that's got to be a godsend. It's got to be a super huge blessing. Yeah, she was a huge asset. I, I mean, and I used it to my advantage for most of my career. Like like. You know, whatever our practice schedule was, like she would put me in at one end of the lake and she would pick me up at another end of the lake. A guy that didn't have that, he may run to the other end of the lake. Well, he's going to lose the time running back. So I did use that to my advantage in that way. Also, just, you know, I got more rest. She she would prepare my meals, uh, make sure if there was anything needed to be handled off the water she took care of it so all i had to focus on is fishing and honestly like with with 80 guys on the bass pro tour now and back when i was on the elite series i mean i would say half the guys probably had that going for them or even had their whole family there and and at first you might think oh what kind of life is that for for the kids or whatever but i'm telling you it's a pretty cool lifestyle and most of the kids i've watched come up from whether they were an infant and now teenagers or or grown up and gone, like they all turned out really good because of it, you know, whether they were homeschooled or, or however, you know, that the parents chose to do it. Like one that I room with now is Jared Lintner, his son, Jaden just turned 16. We had a birthday at one of our tournaments that I was at this year. And, uh, dude, I fished with him this year. He's a, he's just like his dad. He's a good kid. And like I said, that's the thing that, uh, I will miss the most is those relationships, those, those people. And, man just you know the 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 80 guys really are just one big family their wives their kids all of us and kind of live like a bunch of gypsies you know we don't make the schedule we go wherever they say and uh we make the most of it everywhere we go all year every year pretty much right yeah i mean you said it's kind of like gypsies almost like a traveling circus or a carnival i mean you're and i'm because i'm sure mlf has tractor trailers full of equipment and you know that way they can broadcast you know on site and have things like that and i mean it's it's like they you know ringling brothers barnum and bailey heading to st lawrence river let's you know let's go put on a show up here and broadcast it and that's 
Yeah, I, I cannot imagine, you know, all the people like, heck, me, you met me because of something through fishing. It wasn't because I'm a pro, but it was just because you're heavily involved in fishing, you got invited. And you, I mean, that's just another, you know, acquaintance that you met along the way. And that's, uh, and I'm sure you've got, you know, tens of thousands of people. I mean, thousands of people that you've met over the years that, you know, you can, you know, recognize their face. You met them somewhere. You've had an imp- impact on their life. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, that that's a, that's an impact that you can't even, you can't even measure. But so that's a, you know, heck of a, heck of a lifestyle for sure. And, uh, man, that's incredible. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I also agree with the, the circus analogy is what, that's what we're <laughs> living is a lot like a circus, I would think. But, uh, but yeah, the people, and, and, and I will say this, it may seem like the world's big and the fishing industry or the hunting industry is really big. And it's really not like, I haven't been doing it that long, but I pretty much know everybody. I know at least in the fishing industry, whether I've worked for them at one time or I haven't, uh, it's a pretty small, at least in the United States, it's a pretty small community, I think. Yeah, and that's I listen to a lot of other fishing podcasts, and they every everybody says that is you know outside looking in, you're like, oh, this must be a huge deal, but it's the fishing industry as a whole is not that big. Outdoors industry as a whole is not that big, and I'm involved with uh, Pistol Creek Outdoors. There, it's a turkey haul company, so I go to the NWTF convention every uh, February. So, and you know, there you see a lot of the you know the Will Primos, the guys who run Woodhaven turkey calls a lot of the huge names in the industry the guy who what's his name last name's Haas is it Foxy Toxy something uh Haas but he's the guy who runs Mossy Oak and you know we meet him every year and it's like you know the huge biggest names in the industry they're on tv channels like crazy and they're all right there and they all know you and they know the guy that runs Pistol Creek like it's just a tight-knit community but outside looking in it seems like it's huge and massive but no, for sure. So, um, you, you've said a few times, you know, when you hang it up, do you have any, any idea how much longer you're going? And if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But how much, how much longer are you want to do it full time? Are you just going to kind of go, are you going to pull a Rick Clun and go until you're 122 or, you know, how, <laughs> how long are you wanting to go? Definitely not, not Rick. Uh, and I admire Rick a lot. I've got to know him over the years, but, uh, you know, when I when I left the the last event this year, in my mind for a little while, I was thinking this was that was going to be my last one. I just, you know, there, I'm I'm 53 years old. I, I have a lot other things in fishing that I would like to accomplish outside of the the tournament realm. Uh, you know, the traveling, being away from home. You know, I live a place here that i love a lot i could never see it all and do it all right here at home but there's there's a lot of other things i want to do but uh you know what what really keeps me going now is just the companies that i work for i you know i'm pretty involved with a lot of them whether it's building rods reels baits with my name on it you know i work for some of the best i mean i truly believe that whether it's yamaha outboards phoenix boats you know all, all the companies that i work for i just i'm i'm very involved with a lot of them and they need me out there, you know, it's kind of my, my proving grounds for a jig or, or a hook, or, you know, if I got some ideas about a way we should bend the hook to, to build it or the link from the point to the barb, like that's how I test that stuff. That's how I know it's the best. And it's not just me. Like if I, if I, 
need something or answer questions. Like I got a lot of close friends out there. I can give them a bait. I'll let man, tell me what's wrong with this or see it, see if you think it's working right. So that's why I need to be out there still is there's a lot of those projects that are unfinished that are still, you know, I'm really involved with and, and I enjoy that part of it now as much or more than I do fishing tournaments. Like it's one thing to win a tournament, but to do it with a rod you designed with a reel with line and a lure you designed, that's, that's the whole puzzle right there. And, and I guess yeah. guys like Kevin and, uh, so, you know, guys like that kind of really paved the way for that guys I've looked up to my whole career and, you know, him leaving this year, you know, I wouldn't say we were close friends, but we got to be friends. You know, I'd say good friends over the years that I've been fishing against him and for him, this be his last season and, you know, for it to end the way it did for him, you know, finishing second up there. And I really wanted him to win bad uh, at that last event. But, uh, you know, it won't be the same without him. I've always put him, he, he's the best that there's ever been that played this game. And I don't know how we got to talking on him, but he's been on my mind a lot because I'm dreading fishing next year without seeing him there. Yeah, KVD, KVD has been a household name, I mean, since, I guess, early 2000s, 01, 02, somewhere in there, I guess, is when he busted on, maybe late 90s, whenever he got... 90s is when Kevin started. Like he's he he's one year older than me, but he's been fishing twenty something years longer than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's his name has been synonymous with bass fishing. I think anybody who remotely bass fishes, you could say KVD, and they'll know exactly who you're talking about. Like his face is everywhere. He's had his names on, name on. I mean, I, I would hate to see the number of striking baits that he's designed or had a hand in designing i mean all of the or at least made famous you know five xds six xds i mean that's i mean he was he like especially before forward facing sonar he was the best at dissecting an area using his baits to find the fish i mean he was methodical and it was i mean it, it was incredible to watch him coming up yeah it was that way for me from my very first time i fished against him to the very last tournament I fished against him this year, just to to watch him practice on the water next to him or fish right next to him in a tournament setting. You know, he's just one of them guys, and I can count on one hand the guys that I measure myself against, you know, on a, you know, I may finish in the middle of the pack, but if I'm one place ahead of him, I felt better about my finish <laughs> than I would have if he had beat me, you know. And, uh, you know, I... I just fished around that guy a lot. Andy Morgan's another one that to me, I've always just looked up to the guys never let me down. You know, I've never heard a negative thing about him. And, you know, there's a lot of guys like those two, but those two in particular are guys that I enjoyed fishing against. Yeah. And I think, I think Andy Morgan may have been at that USSA event on Gunnersville. I don't think I fished with him, but I think back then, he may have been running a Snickers or an M&M's boat. It was brown and yellow. I think it was Andy Morgan, but that's probably 07, 06, 07, somewhere in there, roughly. But Absolutely amazing fisherman uh, and just a great person, man. And I think he's probably a better hunter than he is a fisherman, which is not good for anything he's uh, chasing out there, which he's probably somewhere <laughs> chasing something right now, if I had to bet. Yeah, he's one of those people, it seems like, Critter is just, he, he understands the wild. Any, anything I've watched or seen about Andy Morgan is 
He, you know, eats, sleeps, and breathes. He swims like a fish, walks like a deer. He just gets it, and he's one of those people that are like that for sure. But, um, yeah, going on into the next little deal. Uh, so, you know, I hope I hope you fish for a long time, and that's uh, interesting to hear, you know, a reason why you're wanting to stay in it. It's not nothing about money or fame. It's just uh, you, you've got projects you want to see to see come to fruition and see how they how they act on out at your level. So, I mean, the the, mo- the closest thing I've ever done to that is I've painted a handful of crankbaits with fingernail polish. Like at one point in time, I think my fingernail polish collection was more than what my wife had of her own, which is, you know, a little embarrassing to say. But I got to where I, there were some old crankbaits of my grandpa's. I don't even know what brand they were. There weren't Norman. A couple of them may have been Normans, but there were some other ones. I, I, I'm i not sure what brand they were, but it was a certain paint, paint scheme that I wanted to mimic. And it was what he had, what my grandpa had done. It was like a citrus shad type pattern. Like the back was like a light blue and had the chartreuse on the bottom. Then he would paint like the whole top of the bait a dark brown. And for whatever reason, the fish loved it up here. And it, and it made it look, it looked kind of like a crawl pattern, a modern day crawl pattern. But he would take, I mean, it could have been a 6XD, 5XD, any kind of thing like that. That was a chartreuse shad or like a, the blue and the blue and chartreuse. And then he would paint like a brown stripe on the back of it. That's, that's about as much as I've done as far as custom baits, that kind of stuff. But no, the feeling you get whenever you, whenever a fish bites what you painted or what you built is, incredible for sure yeah yeah i i enjoy that part of it and you know we i fished a lot of years proving to myself theories and you know i had to you know just the evolution of how this entire thing and how quickly it changes you know a hook that was great 10 years ago nobody uses anymore or the fishing line we were using 10 years ago or the everything that we have now from the prop on my boat to the trolling motor, to the rod, reel, every piece to that puzzle is so much better than it was just even five years ago. Like it changed, it's changing so rapidly and to be a part of that evolution and, you know, help build that stuff. Like it's, I wish I could say it's easy. It's not like, like it's, it's a constant struggle to, to make time to, you know, to test that stuff and to, to prove, Hey man, this, this is definitely better than this. This is why. And, uh, but that's, that's what I deal with on a daily basis, you know, just about yeah. 35 days a year. I'm always tinkering with something or working on something. Right. So if you're designing a rod, how, how long would you say it takes like from beginning idea to finish product and that i mean and I, I don't, i'm not sure how that works i don't know if like with arc i don't know if they were a thing before you joined them or if you helped create arc i'm not sure how all that dynamic went but like is it something where you you pitched to them an idea of a rod or they're like hey we've got these can you make them better but like on as far as like the rod design process with arc how like how long does it take for a rod like an idea in your head to become a rod on a shelf would you say uh honestly it takes less than a week the biggest thing in rods is new materials like you know that we used to build them when i mean when i first started fishing i mean if you had a pretty basic graphite blank you know that was the top of the line rod whether no matter who made it but 
I mean, basically everything's lighter and stronger now. So we achieve that by using new materials and blends of different materials. Like now a lot of our rods are built out of carbon fiber when we use graphite. We use blends of carbon and, and glass to achieve certain actions. But uh but I mean I've been I've been traveled done a lot of traveling, been to a lot of factories and stuff that build rods and you know that the the time that it takes to do that stuff is shipping stuff back and forth. But if you can actually go there because the people building that stuff, they don't even know what it'll do. So they need a fisherman there to be like, man, this is the right action for this or for a crankbait or, and uh, so, so, so everything is just about building a lighter, stronger, you know, technique specific kind of blank because our techniques are changing you know now big swim baits are a thing there's a lot more people using spinning rods forward facing sonar all that stuff so we're tailoring that stuff but but you have to continue to push the envelope on that stuff to stay ahead of the competition so like right right now for instance my signature line of rods we just redid them they were our best selling line for five years at arc uh so a lot of the blanks we kept the same. We changed the EVA. We we were buying a real seat from Fuji. We made our own. It's actually a way better, lighter real seat than the one Fuji makes. Uh, and, and we're just now starting to build our own guides so we don't have to buy those from Fuji either, which I've got some rods with our guides on it that I like better than the Fujis, but I haven't give them the okay so when people buy my new rod next year it'll have fuji guides on it but it'll have our new real seat and i just added some more, uh blanks some new blanks but no new materials on mine we've got some other that's just stuff in rods you know it's just constantly changing and uh they're all kind of built the same uh I don't know. We, a few years ago, we were one of the first to vacuum infuse resin into 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 the material. But they build boats the same way now. They're starting to so they're able to use less resin and less material, and they can get it pulled all the way through using high pressure, which makes it a lot stronger than just painting it on and baking it in an oven. Is how is the old way to build one. So I don't right. know. It used to be about catching fish. Now it's. I mean, I. 10 years ago, I had no idea how a rod was built. Now I've watched them build them, and it's pretty fascinating to see the evolution just in the last few years. And, you know, I can tell you why a $100 rod cost 100 and a $500 rod cost $500. Yeah, and, that, and that's, something, that's something that people, for sure, on a, like an entry-level fisherman, weekend fisherman or whatever – they might see a rod that costs three hundred fifty dollars. Like, oh, there ain't no way. I, I don't need that. There's, there's no difference. You know, for sure there is. If you've ever felt one, I have. I don't have any rods that are that expensive. But, like you said, there's a reason why there's a price difference. But I mean, like you, you've seen them built. You've seen the differences. You've seen why they're stronger, lighter, more sensitive. And that, that's just. I, and, and I'm sure there are bukus of things that you've seen that. You know the modern day consumer, you know everyday average fisherman consumer, would have no idea if you if you explain it to them. They're like, mm, whatever. You know they wouldn't even get it. But uh, I tell you, that's you know when I shop and buy a rod, I try to look at you know the components, the tonnage of the graphite blank. But I mean, it's like you're saying. I didn't even think about that as like how is it even constructed? Like that's that's a whole new ball game to look into when you're buying and you know, going through a like the rod buying process because there are so many rod companies out there. 
that have that, you know, decent entry level rod, rod from a hundred to $150. And then, you know, there's, you know, as much as you want to spend on a rod, you can spend it. But yeah, as far as I'm sure there may be videos out there that go into those details, but no, that's, that's very interesting that you, like you said, you've been in those factories and seen like, how is it made? Why is it more sensitive? And I think that's a pretty good idea that y'all are doing your own proprietary, you know, guides and real seat. Cause I mean, that's, that's your own design. You don't have to, you don't have to pay anybody else for it. So y'all can probably, I would assume bring costs down a little bit on those rods if it's your own design. Well, that's the name of the game and any of it is just providing the best product you can at a price that people can afford. And I'll tell you this, you don't, I mean, you know, I, I fish out of a really expensive bass boat and I use some really nice stuff to do my job, but you don't have to have that stuff to go have a good time, man. Like uh, you can go spend 50 to $70 and get a rod that's better than anything I had six or seven years ago. Like, like, yeah, is, is the one I'm using better? Yeah, it's a lot better, but that one's still really, really good. And, you know, most people, you don't, I, I think, you know, I, I'm all about the high school college fishing and getting kids into the sport. But, you know, I don't want them to think that they need a 70 to 80 or $100,000 bass boat or a live scope machine on there to have to go have fun fishing because you don't. I mean, you can fish off the bank. You can fish out of a kayak. You know, there are a lot of great aluminum boats out there or small bass boats that, that fit the bill. And you can still get the job done and have just as much fun as I do with a, you know, the top of the line equipment that I'm out there trying to compete against Kevin Van Dam with. Like it's, you know, that's, that's the good thing about the sport now is, is there are a lot of different pathways and you don't have to spend a lot of money to enjoy the outdoors and and go fishing. For sure. Yeah. And that's i I'm, I'm a high school teacher and I'm the high school coach at my, at where I teach and, uh, for the fishing team. And I, I have kids coming to me all the time asking, you know, what, what rod should I buy? Do I need to buy a Shimano Corrado DC? Do I need a DC reel? And, you know, all this. And, uh, most of the rods and reels that I throw, the reels I buy are under a hundred. Most of them, 90, 90 bucks or so is about what I'll spend on a reel and they, they work fine. And then the rods are 80 to a hundred bucks. I've got one or two that are maybe a little bit more, but for the most part, like you were saying, you can spend $75, $100 and buy a rod that will for sure get, you, know, you can catch fish on it, hook them, get them in the boat, 100%. But, and that's the, you know, I think bass fishing sometimes gets into a rat race, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, you know, oh, so-and-so has $80,000 boat that's brand new and everyone thinks they have to have it in a live scope and, and live scope's good. I'm not against it by any means, but like you said, you can get a good reliable boat for a lot cheaper. You can get decent grass for a lot cheaper and then you can spend, you know, modest amounts of money and have some really good equipment. And that's what I tell my kids. I'm like, you don't have to go, you don't have to drop $500 per combo. Like you can have under $200 in a combo and have a really good setup. hundred percent. Yeah. And, 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 and the less expensive stuff is way better than it used to be. You know, it'll last a good while. Uh, I mean, honestly, a, a beginner fisherman probably not gonna be able to tell the difference anyways. Uh, you know, well, and, a lot of time on the water to be able to appreciate the difference between a carbon fiber rod that, 
weighs two ounces less than the other rod, you know, I mean, the average guy's not going to notice that. He's not going to notice, you know, this reel holds a little bit more line than this reel. Like, what's the advantage or disadvantage, you know? Like, that's, you know, but those are things that make a difference to me, you know, like like as far as trying to be the best, do the best, uh, and, and, you know, continuing to help these companies build the best products like all all of that is just stuff that i'm involved with on a daily basis and you know but it's it's a fine line you know try you know i like it when people buy that stuff (laughs) oh yeah for sure i mean that's and and there there's a and that's the thing there's a market for every single you know price point there are some guys who have boats full of the g loomis nrx that are you know six five six hundred dollars per rod and there's guys like me who have i use a lot of 13 fishing rods and it's because i can get a decent rod for like 79.99 msrp and as far as the reaction bait goes it does fine i love their cranking rods i mean that's that those are the ones that i use for the most part but you know and we both i, I have a good time and the guy that spends you know, five, six hundred dollars on our on each rod also has a good time. And that's the I think that that's what we when you get to the nuts and bolts of it, it's not looking at everybody else, what everybody else is doing, how they're catching them to an extent. And I'll get into that here in a little bit. But find what you like, what you're confident in and go do it. I mean, that's that's it. Like I'm still very much so in the electric only fishing world. I started a club in 2011 I think it's 2011 when I was like a freshman in college and it slowly grew. And now we've got 20 boats in my club. We have to cap it off at 20 because the lakes we fish are so small. And I've got seven or eight people on a waiting list for next year trying to get in when we fish. Is it like uh, just small boats with trolling motors and that's it? Well, it's it, it starting out. It was John Belts, Chillin' Motors, Cooler, Live Wells. It was you know very very low low budget, and it's grown a lot because there's so many drinking water lakes in Georgia. So we fish Lanier three times a year, different ramps, and then there's five. Then we have five other electric only lakes that we fish. But like I fish out of a, it's an old like a 1990 model Hydrosport. It's a 19 foot boat. But I've got two 24-volt motors on the back and then a 24-volt on the front. So, like, I'll run, like, five miles an hour, you know, blazing fast. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I've got some old, I've got some, you know, pretty high-capacity. They're still lead-acid, so they're heavy. But I've got some pretty high-capacity batteries, so battery life's not a problem for me. But there's also some guys who have the electric outboards in my club that'll run 10 to 12 miles an hour that have like completely custom decked out boats. I mean, it's some people have, you know, 30 grand plus in a electric only rig, which in the bass boat world is not spending that much money. So, and, and some of it's guys who have come from fishing Lanier a lot, you know, we're so close to Lanier. A lot of my buddies have bass boats and go out there all the time. But a lot of those guys have come from that and joined clubs like I do. I mean, and it's, and the, the electric, the electric outboard, technology is coming a long way battery technology is coming a long way like there's a couple of guys that i know one guy has a 50 horse electric outboard and one guy has a 75 horse and they'll run they'll get on plane and they'll run pushing 30 miles an hour in an electric boat but so that this i i enjoy it it's a good community i mean it's a, it's a blast but yeah it's low budget but we have a great time so 
Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you don't have to have spend, you know, $500 on a rod and reel or $100,000 on a boat or have a live scope to enjoy fishing or tournament fishing. Like, me, 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 you know, if there's a lake behind the campground I'm staying in next week and a couple of us get a rod and reel, we're going to have the most intense competition you've ever seen down there. That's a 12-inch or off a bed if there's one there. Like, that's just... You know, if you're a competitive person, you don't have to. And, and I think the biggest growing part is the kayak part of the, you know, there, there's more kayak tournaments and there's more money being spent towards payouts and stuff in kayak fishing tournaments than at, at you know, my level of fishing right now. Like, I actually am a little jealous of some of the locations and you know, some of the stuff I'm seeing in that whole realm. I mean, I think it'd be pretty cool if Randall Tharp got him a nice kayak. And went. Well, hey, that might, whenever you get out of the, out of the big Phoenix, that might be your next stop, you know, the Bassmaster kayak series or whatever the next big kayak series is. I mean, that's a lot of guys around here doing that too. I think the, one of the biggest kayak dealers is, I think it's called the dugout. Is it Canton or Marietta? Maybe Marietta. But dugout bait and tackle, they're a huge Hobie dealer. Like maybe one of the biggest ones in the country, but they sell fully rigged kayaks. It's incredible what 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 they sell out there. The dugout's up around Lake Altoona is where that's at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually I I think the very first bass tournament I've ever fished in my entire life was called the Dugout Bass Classic on Lake Altoona. I don't remember what year that was. But uh, I used to I used to live up there around Kennesaw years ago when my wife and I first met. Okay, yeah. How how old were you in your first bass tournament? That one on Elatuna, would you say? I was in my thirties, so that was twenty twenty something years ago. So I, I, gotcha. I didn't fish any tournaments, you know, when I was a teenager or early twenties. Uh, didn't didn't really start bass fishing until my early thirties. Gotcha. So I came. I don't know. It's I've come a long ways in a relatively short amount of time. When I think about it that way, and I know Kevin started when he was a teenager. He he had about twenty, almost thirty years on me. <laughs> no one. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how long did it take you? See, so you said you fished your first tournament, early thirties, somewhere in there. How long did it take you to get to like the professional level? Was it within ten years, or how long did it take you? Yeah, yeah. Like I started, I remember fishing tournaments early two thousands, like club tournaments and stuff. Uh, then started maybe fishing like reads like BFLs and stuff. Maybe two thousand and three or four. Uh, I would say two thousand and five is when I started having a lot of success. Uh, you know, winning BFLs, winning you know regional events, and then I pretty much quit my job at the end of 2007, which was kind of like a recession. Uh, it was, the economy wasn't very good. Uh, I was a trim carpenter and I never had to look for work, you know, in all the years I did that. And I was kind of getting low on work, didn't have a bunch of jobs waiting. And, uh, I had basically, you know, I'd put enough money back in the bank that I could afford to go do it a couple of years. And I think honestly, that was one of the reasons I was successful is like, I didn't have to go out there and try to fish for a check. Like I had one enough money fishing locally to, to that afforded me that. And Sarah could pay our bills, whether I caught one or not, that, that would made it easier for me as well. And, uh, you know, the first year I won, you know, 
three national events and I, they were all a pretty good chunk of change. And I put that money and I'm still fishing on that money today. So, so, uh, it's, you know, a lot of, you know, it, it's an expensive business. Uh, you know, I still pay to go to work, unfortunately. Uh, but, but it's, it's, it brands, you know, it kind of just grown and changed from that time, you know, 2008, when I started to now, this the whole sport has really evolved changed some for the better some for the worst i think but uh you know i i i still enjoy what i do i'm thankful every day i get to watch the sunrise or set over the water no matter if i'm in michigan or upstate new york or here in my home state of florida or georgia wherever like it's that's one of my favorite things is just whether i'm fishing for fun or in a tournament i love being out there right no that I mean, you got to love what you do, no matter what it is. I mean, as a teacher, I love what I do day in, day out. You know, day, some days are better than others, but I'm sure it's that way, you know, fishing for a living too. But uh, you brought something up there, you know, the way, the, I guess, money has changed or how, you know, tournaments, the whole business has changed. Um, so I remember you won the Forestwood Cup. I forget. It was somewhere out west. Was it, was it Red River? Or where was it you won the Forestwood? No, I would call that it is definitely west of us, but it's not out west west. It's yeah, you know, relatively in the I'd consider that south southeast still, but but yeah, the Red River over there. Uh that that's really that that win really changed my career, I would say. Uh it was right before I made the decision to go to the Elite Series. Uh and, and that was really that that moment. And I'd won a lot of tournaments prior to that. Uh, but that was the one that kind of gave me the legitimacy. It started my name, my name meant something after that win. And that tournament at that time was a big tournament. I'm not saying it's like a Bassmaster classic, but it was comparable at that point in time. You know, it was, if you look at the names in that field and, and the guys that I was competing against, it was, uh, it was some of the best. And, you know, I still, still probably the biggest win of my financially it was definitely the biggest bump and, and being legit in this industry you know i had i did my phone did ring after that and I'll, i'd won a lot of tournaments and guess what my phone never rang but it did ring after that one and uh you know it kind of made my decision to go fish bass easier because i had accomplished everything i wanted to at flw after that win so uh you know, wasn't one long after. I think I fished FLW one year after that, and then a lot of us, me, Brent Ayler, Brett Height, there was a bunch of my buddies that we all qualified for the elites the next year, and and I actually fished both tours that year. So I fished, uh, I think fourteen. I fished FLW and Bass, and then I went exclusively to Bass after that and focused on elites and the classic. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember uh, when you won the Forestwood cup on the red river you know that was always neat i tried to follow your uh career pretty closely after i met you but uh you know you won i think that was half a million dollars five hundred thousand dollars in one tournament which is insane you know that's that doesn't happen nowadays um and i remember you said uh, there's an inter post it may have been I don't, I don't know if it was on stage or if it was just one of the many interviews. You know, I'm, I'm sure you did hundreds of interviews the next few months after that. But in one of those, you said, you know, I can fish for a long time on this right here. I mean, and that's that, you know, people don't think about that, you know, as a pro, they're like, oh, pro fishing, that's, that would be the best thing in the world, you know, to be traveling. But 
and back then, you know, the the payouts were really really good. I feel like a lot, some of the sponsors, the what do you call it, the the non endemics, the non fishing related sponsors were more willing. The big title names were willing to come in a little bit more than they are now. But um, what do you think has changed? I don't know if it, and it could have been the 08 recession that kind of kickstarted some of the money to come down. But what do you think has changed? You know in the organizations because you know payouts are down on both sides on bass flw i mean or mlf now but you know what do you think changed the most from then to now to half a million dollars to i'm not what is what is red crest now i'm not sure what the payout is there red crest pays three hundred thousand. but just to get since i've been doing this and and i i I wasn't around making a living in the early 2000s but in my from what i know and the history of the sport if you look back that was the peak of the sport. That was when ESPN had bass. Erwin Jacobs had, you know, bought Operation Bass and basically started FLW, and it was just raining corporate sponsorship money on both sides. You know, there I don't know, like there was five or six TV shows just on ESPN that was Bassmasters at that time. And, and I remember when I started, the first two Forest Wood Cups that I fished Michael Bennett won one and Scott Suggs won one. They paid a million dollars. Scott Suggs and Michael Bennett both won a million dollars. In 2011, I finished second to Scott Martin. He won 600000 I think I got $125,000 for second place, which for second place, that was pretty dang good. Uh, when I won, I got half a million. Then two years after I won, it went to 300000 So, And that's where the championships are at right now. And if you look at the payout structure as a whole, it's gone down. Our entry fees have continued to go up. And I, I honestly don't think that trend is going to change. Like it, I, I haven't seen a pay structure next year, but I'm anticipating entry fees probably go up, payouts probably go down because that's the way it's trended. And, and with what I'm looking at going on in the country right now, it's not good. So... You know, I just don't, that's, that's what I'm anticipating. I think, you know, people are still buying boats. They're still buying trucks and stuff. I think, you know, but, but it's slowing down. And so I'm anticipating it not to get better for us anytime soon. I I think a lot of us that were at Bass when MLF approached us about leaving to, to, to try to make something bigger and better. I think that was the biggest reason that almost everybody went that they asked. I think there was 80 invitations and 74 guys decided to take it myself. And, you know, a lot of the other guys, you know, we just had really hoped that a change like that would be the best thing for the sport to continue to grow it where a guy could make a living fishing because there's way more tournaments. There's way more high school college kids. We, I I want something for all of those younger people where if they want to make a living and they truly are naturally talented angler where they they will have something 10 15 20 years from now and i'm not going to sit here and tell anybody they can't do it because they certainly can but it's not getting any easier it it, it's definitely not getting any easier and you know ask jason christie ask me all of us guys that came up at that time most of us we got there because we could pay our bills with our tournament winnings and you just can't do that anymore. I don't care how good. Nobody's going to go out there and win every tournament they fish. And to to do it now, you'd have to win half of them to 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 
to be able to support yourself and pay your bills without any sponsorship support. And I mean, you need to be able to just do simple math. And I mean, my expenses now to fish, I fish maybe a dozen tournaments a year now. Uh, championship events, a lot of those team series events, uh, you know, a lot of those I don't even pay an entry fee for. But my expenses are well in the six figures just to go fishing. And that's, you know, that's a lot of that's a lot of money I'm paying to go to work. Uh, you know, whether that be hotel bills, gas, you know, maintenance on my outboard trucks, stuff like that. Like that's what it costs me a year to, to go to work. So before everybody's so eager to jump into this boat, think about, you know, going down here and framing a house, you're getting paid to go to work. I'm paying to go to go to work. So it's, it's a, it's different. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm thankful. And I, I, every day that I can do what I do to make a living, but most sports from what I have gathered, whether it's football, baseball, you name it, is not what most people think. People think it's a dream job. My, my next door neighbor was a tackle for the Indianapolis Colts. He played in the NFL. And let me tell you, I, I thought that would be a pretty good job until I started hearing the stories about what he went through to try to make a living playing professional football. And he's younger than me. He's 47, I believe now. And the, he's a freak of nature. Great big guy's hand weighs more than my half of my body but but you know he's walking or hobbling around almost crippled because he was playing hurt all these years just trying to pay his bills and uh you know just be be wary of what you're getting yourself into take it slow you don't have to rush into anything and i see a lot of young kids these days getting out there before they're really ready and they don't have a plan and i'm telling you the, the companies the good companies in this industry they just don't go throwing a lot of they, – they didn't get to be big and successful by just handing out baits or lures or sponsorship dollars to everybody that says they want to be a bass pro. They wouldn't be in business very long. So it, it takes several years to establish yourself in the industry as far as, you know, you need to perform on the water, but even more importantly, you got to perform off the water. And most people that want to fish for a living – I see it in a lot of young guys. I've tried to help a lot of them. They just want to fish, and it's it's hard to survive just fishing these days. No, yeah, I I can imagine. Like you said, I knew that the entry fees were well into the tens of thousands. That I think the Elite Series is forty thousand. I'm sure y'all's is around there. Just in just in entry fees to fish for the year, and then all the travel with inflation. I mean, six figures to go to work. I mean, like, when you frame it like that, that's I w – I'm not going to say insanity, but that's the that's the side of it that people maybe don't see or don't comprehend. Like, a lot of people don't make six figures between the two – between them and their spouse. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But, I mean, six figures – if you make six figures, you break even. I mean, that's I – mean, that, that's, that's crazy. But – um Something you brought up there, you know, the, all the the, com the fishing companies nowadays, I think, I, and this is, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and kind of formulated my own, you know, idea about it. But I think there's so much on YouTube and social media and people that are not professionals that are very, very marketable that have hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube and get the, get the word out to a lot more people 
than somebody who strictly fishes tournaments. And he may win every regional event, every BFL that he enters, but you compare him to a guy that's got a very, very famous TikTok or a very, very famous YouTube channel or something like that. I mean, I think a lot of the money and, you know, the, you know, it's, it's kind of spread. It, the, the, those companies are spread more thin nowadays. And like you were saying earlier, used to ESPN had the market share on Bassmaster. I mean, and that was the, about the only place you, ESPN or TNN way back in the day. That's where you watch bass fishing. Now I can pull up YouTube and watch any Bassmaster Classic I could dream of. I could watch Brandon Polinick, Luke Palmer. I could watch a bunch of the, you know, Brent Ayler, Edwin Evers. I can watch any of their YouTube channels and follow bass fishing for for zero dollars on my part. So, I mean, I think the money is just spread out so thin nowadays that, I mean, and it's not, like you said, it's not going to get any easier, but I think the guys coming up, like I've got a few, I've had one angler who's fishing in college now on a scholarship, and I'm not sure if he wants to go pro. I don't, I don't know if that's, you know, I'm sure in the back of his mind he would love to, but um, I've never had any of my personal students or anglers want to, you know, turn pro, but my advice to those kids are going to be, make yourself marketable like a company wants to return on the, their investment so be able to point to i have this many views on this i have this many views on that i've got this many viewers on my live live whatever and then that company might be like okay yeah well you know we'll, we'll, we'll give you a shot don't go there and be like i can catch bass pretty good can i have some money <laughs> you know that doesn't work anymore yeah i agree with you i, I don't know that the marketing budgets have changed much but they are just dispersed and spread spread then and those companies would be crazy if they didn't like it's just a different world now then when i started i mean none of that was even in existence so i've kind of watched that portion of it transpire and now in you know, a lot of my contracts regardless of who it's for it's about a certain number of clicks you know it's about a, producing a certain number of you know quality videos quality content for them uh you know all of that is is part of my job now instead of fishing a tournament you know so uh but it's something i enjoy it's something that i, I didn't enjoy it in the beginning but you know you get the right group around you you know i got a couple of guys that i love working with super talented people that are very good at that with a camera or a video camera or editing that stuff and you know that's i don't know all that stuff pretty fun like i, I really yeah. I've done a lot of TV shows the last few years, whether it's Joe Thomas's show, uh, Charlie Ingram's show, whoever, Zona's show. Like, dude, that stuff is so much fun. If you're just around the right people, it can be a lot, a lot of fun. So, um, but that's that side of it is it's it's so different than it used to be. Yeah. Well, like, I remember growing up, you know, it was. You know, if you like, you always want to be like, oh man, I want, I want to be a professional hunter. I want to be on a hunting TV show. And even as, you know, recent as 10 years, you'd think, okay, well, I've got to meet the right people. I got to travel across the country. I got to, you know, get hooked up with people. Then maybe I'll get on the outdoor channel. And now, if you're good, if you, you can go buy your own camera, your own editing software, and poof, you got a TV show on YouTube. And if you're good enough at it, like the Seek One Productions, I don't know if you watch any hunting, but Seek One is from Georgia. They hunt and kill gigantic deer in in like suburban Atlanta, uh, like in the you know basically in the city. And it was just a startup YouTube channel. 
and people it, it's caught fire. I mean, that's what they do for a living now. YouTube, a YouTube hunting channel, the hunting public. I mean, there's a bunch of people like that, and it's that's just the the whole landscape of that kind of like the outdoor hunting, fishing, marketing, that industry has just vastly changed. And I think it's changed for the better, I mean, because there's so much information out there, be it good or bad, but there's so much more information. I mean, I can, you can pull up a laptop or your phone and watch hours of hunting and fishing entertainment at your fingertips, you know, at any given time. So, I mean, it's it's a good thing, but it's just a, it's a new new norm that people have to get used to, for sure. Yeah, I enjoy that stuff. I enjoy watching it, like, you know, we, I kind of quit camping three or four years ago. I rent houses everywhere we go. And a lot of them just have like, you know, just like some kind of internet TV. And there's a lot of great hunting and fishing shows that are just free on, on you know, streaming networks and stuff that, you know, different places I go has different, whatever it's called, Tubi or, you know, all, all these different platforms that I'm just now becoming familiar with. But there's some great fishing and hunting shows on on networks like that you know that's a little more polished than a lot of the stuff you see on youtube but i enjoy the youtube too i, I really do like like I, i've got a youtube channel i don't put a lot into it you know a lot of the stuff i'm required to do or videos i'm required to to make i do put on my channel but uh you know i'm not trying to like make money out of youtube but some of the, some of the guys i know Brandon does. I'm sure Jacob Wheeler does. I'm sure a lot of those guys that have made a, a effort to do that, they, they're putting out some good stuff. Yeah, and I think the model that they do it at is kind of a good mindset for a young angler coming up. Is like they've built their own personal brand. You know, Jacob Wheeler has Wheeler Fishing. Brandon Polinick has BMP BMP Fishing. Dustin Connell has DC Fishing. It's like it's it's his own company business model i mean branding whole nine yards and that's kind of how how you have to put it like i'm this is my company is randall tharp fishing and this is what i offer you know that's i mean that that's kind of how it's how it's going nowadays but and and again not not a bad thing not a you know it's just kind of how it is and that's fine i mean i think it's a good thing but it's definitely smart on their part like like you know none of us run the leagues we just you know we're a part of the league we don't run the league if the, if the whole league thing goes south or tournament fishing, at least they still have an avenue where they can do that what they love and continue to, to you know, have their business and make it work. Right. So it, it, it's smart. Uh, it's definitely, I feel like the younger guys, you know, 10, 15 years younger than me, guys that came up after me have a definite advantage over me because they grew up in that world, that environment that was normal to them where it's not to me. Um, but more, my hats off to them, man. I like watching their stuff. Like they, I, I, I see what they do out there at our tournaments. It, it is a, you know, fishing a tournament at the level that we do. It's a lot of long days, a lot of hard work. Um, and for them to fit all that in and still be a competitive angler out there is very impressive to me. Yeah, no, for, for sure. For sure. Well, enough about the administrative type stuff there. I, I do have a, a question. I, I enjoy talking about it. I mean, this is something that it's everywhere out there. We, I feel like we, me and you could talk about it for four more hours, but, uh, uh, I do have a question from a former student of mine. Uh, 
He's fishing the BFLs now. I think he has a regional coming up, possibly. But any, anyways, Tyler Brooks is his name. And he had a question. Whenever you're going to fish a new lake, brand new lake, never been to it before, how do you go about breaking down the lake? How do you pick a ramp to start? You know, what? what's your whole process? Do you do map studies ahead of time? Do you, like, what, what's your what's your process there? Brand new lake, never been, and you got to go pre-fish. Well, I mean, I think... Every person's different. Every bass fisherman is different. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, and, and something that I've really, over the years that I've enjoyed, whether it's with somebody like Kevin, is I like to see how they do their job. Like, I like to watch them practice. I like to understand how they think. But for me to sit here and tell somebody what I would do wouldn't be fair to them. Like, like if he's traveling around fishing regional tournaments or whatever, which is what it sounds like if he's going to lakes he's never been to, he just he needs to start developing a system that's going to work for him no matter where he goes. You know, he's got to have strengths and he's got to have weaknesses. Always try to fish to your strengths. Always try to find something that you have confidence in or something that looks good to you, regardless of where you're at. Um, you know, there, there's some... I don't know some places where that just doesn't work. Like it doesn't do me good to go up to the St. Lawrence river and think I'm going to go flip grass and be competitive there because everybody's going to catch 25 or 26 pounds of smallmouth. So you can't do that everywhere, but say if, you, if he's from the Southeast, I mean, you can, you can find something that looks similar to, to something you like doing or, or how you like catching on any lake there is. So, you know, for me personally, I can narrow it down just by the time of year, you know, is pre-spawn, post-spawn, spawn, like what's going on. Like, you know that before you get there. Uh, you know, I, I study the weather religiously like a, a month, or probably a month and a half out from when I, I want to know what's going on there way before I get there. You know, has the lake been high? Has it been low? Is it muddy? Is it clear? You know, all of those are pieces to the puzzle you can you can be way ahead of everybody else, or you can for, start formulating a plan before you ever see the water. And then, you know, once you get there, like our practices are very brief. We get a day and three quarters, really. We get one full day, and then we have to be up the water usually by six o'clock on day two. So, but what is allowed is you can, like the day I arrive, the day before practice starts, I can ride around the lake and look at it. Like if I want, if I think they're going to be in dirty water, I can find it in my truck. If I think they're going to be in clear water, I can find it in my truck. If I think they're going to be in current, I can see if a current's rolling down up a river. So all of those are things that he can do to, you know, try to find something that suits his strengths. But for me to sit here and be like, well, I'm, I'm going to go try to flip a jig. I think you ought to flip a jig on a black bank. If he don't like fishing a jig or have confidence, that's the last thing he should do. And that's the coolest thing about tournament fishing is there's no right or wrong way. Like I, I, yeah. I made top tens and won tournaments, and there'd be 10 guys fishing on the final day, and eight of the 10 will be doing totally different things. And, you know, that's the cool thing is, man, what's the what's what thing's going to be the best this week or today or the final day. And that's what, that's what fascinates me about the sport is just the different people, different techniques, different approaches, you know, I'm, I'm sure certain guys, well, you got to be doing this or you're not going to win. Well, that's not true, man. There's, there's all different ways you can skin a cat. And that, you know, that's the advice I would give him is just 
don't get caught up into what everybody else is doing. Try to do your own thing. Try to fish to your strengths. And I, I mean, if, if you've only got confidence in throwing a green pumpkin finesse worm on some rocks and go find some rocks, do what you're best at and stick with it. Don't lose confidence, but to go do something that somebody else told you, if you're not, if it doesn't go your way, you're not, it's not going to last long. And it's, it's honestly like, it's just never worked for me. And it's never worked for a lot of my buddies that compete at the highest level. Most everybody I know does their own thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent with that. And that's what I told him after that. Any advice that I gave him, I'm like, man, it's hard to catch somebody else's fish. And I, I find myself saying that to my, to my high school anglers all the time because they'll ask me well, do you have any good spots or what have you been doing i'm like well i can tell you what i've been doing or where i've been doing it but like it's hard to catch somebody else's fish is the is the saying i've always heard you know and sometimes i might tell you hey randall there's a great brush pile on that point go throw a spook over it you'll catch 20 pounds for sure and you may go over there and have the day of your life and you may also get there and not be throwing the right color the wrong cadence or something maybe just a little bit off even with you know conditions and then you're like well crap this this ain't gonna work and then that you'll get into a you spin yourself out but yeah and that's uh you know any advice the one, one bit of advice i did tell him after that was uh you know a shaky head has won a lot of money and that's something that and that that's me talking to myself for the most part because in my in the tournaments that i run the electric only stuff my best tournaments, the tournaments that I do the best in, win money in, if I win, usually I've got a shaky head in my hand. I found a pattern or found a school of fish, and that's just, it's my confidence. And, I mean, to be honest, if I if I kept nothing but shaky heads on my deck, I'd probably do a lot better day in, day out in my tournaments. If I just kept it simple and just did, stuck to my strengths, you know. But, no, that's that's very, that's very good advice for sure, I think, is developing your own plan something that works and on how to dissect it and that's something i listen or i've been watching some videos from what's his name johnny schultz is fish the moment on youtube he's like a super super analytical dude and i i like listening to how he breaks stuff down he's like he documents every fish he catches like has a spreadsheet i mean every you know every condition water clarity water temp air temp barometric pressure i mean every single thing he could ever dream of like detail wise so that way whenever he goes and it's and it happens again okay well this happened before and it takes your your human you know i I know sometimes on on a tournament day i'll have i'll kind of spin myself out or i'll be trying to think three steps ahead not even thinking about what i'm doing currently i'll be thinking about well crap maybe they're down here maybe i should go try this and not even focusing on what i'm doing so it's interesting you know, sure, for sure, go with your gut, have have those good gut feelings, but like you said, develop a system that works for you, so it's just, you know, step one, check, step two, check, step three, check, and then hopefully by then you've got a pattern figured out. Yeah, you got to have confidence in yourself and your abilities and, and, and what you're good at. Um, I can tell you a couple stories, a couple interests, like, like the very first Elite Series event I fished was on Lake Seminole. Um and I'd never, throughout my whole career, I'd never talked to any. Occasionally, you know, my buddies in the campground, man, it was a tough day or whatever. Like, that's about the extent of it. We don't ever talk about anything other than, man, are we going to cook steaks tonight or fish or what's good? That's, that's what we talk about. We don't talk about fishing much. But my phone rings, and it was totally legal at this time to do this. Um, and it was my buddy, Brett Height. 
And it was, we, I think at that time we got three days of practice, three full days of practice on the elite series. And it was the end of the second day. And he calls and he goes, man, he goes, you know, I, I never call. I said, yeah, what's up? You broke down or something? He goes, no. I said, I ain't had a bite in two days. I said, man, I was like, they're biting. Like, like this Seminole, you know, it's springtime. It was February. I said, dude, they're just spawning. Like, that's, you know, there's fish spawning. That's all you need to know. But he said, all I've done is throw my jackhammer around. For two days, he ain't had a bite. Well, he ended up winning the tournament. And guess what? It had nothing to do with what I told him. It's because he never put the jackhammer down. Like, he was willing to zero. But he wanted, he had made his mind up before he got there. That's how he was going to fish. It's got grass in it. The fish are pre-spawn. You can, you're, you can win on his favorite bait, his signature bait that time of year. And I give the hats off to the guy because he, he, after he called me and I said, man, they're just spawning. You can catch them super shallow, you know, wherever they're going to spawn. He didn't listen to me. He just kept doing his thing for the last day of practice. And he started getting bites at, after lunch on the last day of practice and the tournament came to him. And that's exactly what I'm trying, the advice I'm trying to give is stick to your guns, man. Like it's, you know, and have confidence in what you, what you can do out there. And that's the reason B Heights won all the tournaments he's won is because he's the best with that bait and that particular technique. And he's stubborn as a mule too. He's probably lost a bunch of money and, you know, finished at the back of the pack too, just like I had. I'm stubborn too. Stubbornness can get you in trouble and it can also put the trophies on your mail. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. But that's, uh, that's crazy. And that's something, you know, fishing, I've never fished for anywhere near that kind of money before, uh, you know, what you guys do, but that, the, to have the guts to stick like on with Brett height situation, to have the guts to stick with that after having days of no bites and then it, you, it, you piece it together the last half of the day, last half of the last day of practice. And then, all right, you know, yeah, let's go do that tomorrow. That's insane. I mean, that's uh, that leads me to another question I had for you, um, on confidence and like you kind of like the mental, mental strength is of like if you have a great practice, like let's say you, you're on a lake, you found a good a good area, a couple of points, or maybe it's a creek, whatever, but you found a spot like all right, I'm gonna fish there. I've got tournament winning fish. Like that's where I'm gonna go. And then let's say you have a bad boat draw, you show up and there's a local on, there's two or three locals on one spot. There's another competitor on another spot. The first two places you go and you're like, crap, you know, what What do you do or how do you stay? Like, do you, I know there's a lot of unwritten rules. Sometimes you could pull in like, Hey man, do you care if I, you know, go up here and fish this pasture or, you know, communication's key in that, in that point, as far as like boatsmanship, I guess. But what do you do if, you know, in that situation and like in my situation, electric stuff, if I have my mindset on something and I'm not the fastest boat, I may not get to that spot first. So what, what, what's your advice in that situation? Like there's a competitor or a non-competitor on a spot you had your heart set on. Well, one thing I see that a lot of guys at my level, a, a thing that differentiates us is we never get so locked in. I mean, you can't control what happens out there, whether it be with another competitor, a local, you know, if there's another big tournament on the water the same day, I've no control over that. So you can, can only control the things hey buddy, that you can control. 
So, so you always have to keep an open mind and can't tell you, excuse me, I got a nine month old lab here that wants my opinion, but uh, you can only control the things that you want to control. And, and just, you have to be willing to pull a rod out of the box at any time that you hadn't practiced with. And I'll be honest, like I never know what I'm on anymore until the tournament starts. Like, man, I mean, the most I'm going to do most of the time, I don't have a hook on my bait to begin with. So I don't really know what size. I'm just looking for a certain number of bites. And then once I get a few bites, I, then I'm looking for as many options as available. And, and my strategy, you know, changed a lot when we started going to Every Fish Counts at MLF. And, like, I, I was pretty much just like you with your electric motor. I was confined to one part of the lake because if I ran to the other part of the lake, I'd be so far behind, I couldn't catch up. So I had to find a bunch of options in one area. So now we're back to five fish and I'm hunting quality bites, but I still, I just don't catch very many fish in practice. So I never really know. For me, it's just finding options. I want to find as many options as possible and I don't really care how I have to catch. I just want to catch them. So, so that's, that's my approach now in, you know, practice has never paid a dime. And, and I, I know most people like they have to catch a few fish to get their confidence up. But for me, it's, you know, I like catching them on tournament day. So that's how I approach it. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's, I've had days where, you know, of course, you know, when, when sometimes I have time to pre-fish or sometimes I don't, and, you know, I fished all the lakes that we fish on our schedule, you know, pretty regularly. So I kind of know what should be going on there, and I've got areas that I've, I mean, the lakes aren't that big, so I, I kind of know where I want to go. But uh, this past year, there was one tournament where I pre-fished a lake that I usually do pretty good at. It's a lake called Hickory Log. It's it's in Canton, so not just not too far north of Alatoona, Marietta, Kennesaw, that area. Well, I went pre-fishing, and there's a certain area that I always go to. Like, it's just I have luck there. I found it the first time I ever went to the lake. I caught a bunch of fish down it. There's always fish on it, so I'm like, all right, I, I like this area. I went over there and pre-fished. I found a couple good – this is summer, like late summertime, probably June-ish sometime. I found a couple different points that were loaded with fish. Made two casts, caught a four-and-a-half-pounder. I'm like, cool. All right, they're, they're here. There's some size. I'll go, I'll go look around. And then tournament day came. I went to that spot. My, my first fish was a three pounder. We didn't catch any other size past that. We had like eight or nine pounds. And this is, this is a lake where usually 10 to 11 will win it on five. So we, I think we finished third, but you know, pre-fishing kind of worked out for me. Then you fast forward to the next month. I think this is July or August. Um, I went pre-fishing to a lake that I haven't done very good at. So I was fishing some new areas, just trying to cover water, get some get some ideas. And I was throwing a drop shot up into some grass. And I'd, I'd rip, I was, you know, Texas rigging, you know, weedless, a, a, a six-inch six inch drop shot worm. And I'd rip it up out of the grass. And when I ripped it up, they would just chomp it. And I had a, had a really good day, caught a three, a four and a half, you know, it kind of stair-stepped down from there. Had a great day on drop shot. Phenomenal. My best drop shot day ever, ever probably by myself. And then tournament day came, the fish were there and I could not get them to bite and I was stubborn. Like, and that's, you know, I probably should have changed what I was doing a little bit earlier, but I 
Yeah, I, 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 I just fished. I had like three or four places I was cycling through all day. And I just I kept the drop shot in my head. I'm like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The fish are here. And it never did. We had like we had like five dinks, I think. Maybe maybe not even limit. Four or five dinks. Just a little bitty ones. So I was like, that's a... And sometimes that happens. Like you said, if you're stubborn, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. And it could have just as easily been a phenomenal day. It could, they could have started biting at 12, 1230. But... You know, that's, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with pre-fishing because sometimes, like, you know, back-to-back months, one one was like, great, finishing the money, had a great tournament. The other one is like, why do I even do this? <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I used to pre-fish a lot, like early in my career. But, you know, there was a lot of things that I needed to figure out, like smallmouth lakes for one, herring lakes for another. You know, if it was a river or if it was Florida fishing, you know, I was comfortable. That's what I grew up. I, I knew, knew how to approach those tournaments, but I did a lot until I figured the smallmouth thing out before I figured the blueback thing out. Uh, and those are, and Florida fishing is a struggle for some guys. That's another unique difference. It's not normal for, for most people, the way we fish down here in Florida, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's overrated now. I mean, if you ask most young guys, they're going to vote for the most practice they could get. Most of the older guys that's been doing it as long as me. I mean, yeah, I can see it at the boat ramp now. I used to be daylight to dark. I would be the first one there, the last one to leave every every day. And I wanted the other guys to see my truck and boat there too. And now, I mean, if I feel good about it or if I have a lot of options that I was talking about, I get off the water at two or three go in and enjoy good dinner cook a steak you know get rested up you know until practice starts paying something I, i'm just not yeah i mean that's i've heard too many stories like that where people they're the they're the practice champions oh man i i called them good in practice and then you know tournament day comes and it doesn't happen but that's just the that's fishing i mean lakes change so much yeah, and, and I mean, most most guys at my level, I would say half of us probably never, in, you know, we may catch a few if it's a big body water, nobody's around. The last thing I want to do is let somebody else see me. I mean, so, so most of the time, I, there's never a hook out. Either my hooks are bent over or I fish with a hitchhiker a bunch. And you will not believe, well, how do you know how big they are? If it's a like a flipping bite or whatever, I can pull three quarters of them up and look at the fish and they never turn it loose. You know, I can tell you that's a four pounder that's a five pounder. And, uh, I actually proved that on, uh, the Joe Thomas thing this year, the ultimate match fishing, uh, final, I made it all the way to the finals and I ended up winning. It's the only belt I got right here. <laughs> I hit up. Brandon Coulter was who I fished against in the finals. Well, he he had his match the day before the finals. I had my match the day before that, so I got a day of practice, and he didn't. Well, he went and caught all his fish, and I literally went and shook about 10 fish off, and I knew how big each one of those fish was. And I would tell the camera guy, they were all spawning. They were around some boat docks. And I would tell him, I was like, all right, get ready. And Brandon couldn't do anything because he couldn't throw across the lobby. There's a three and a half pounder here. And I did that and, you know, pretty much called my shot that whole day in that championship match. And that's just proof. Would I have caught any of those fish if I'd caught them the day before? Probably not. Right. All right. So, 
So in your in your pre-fishing, you said the hitchhiker. What is, what is that? How do you is that like a just a soft plastic with no hook, or what is a hitchhiker? Uh it's it's there's several companies that make one. The the one I use is made by owner, and it's just a little screw lock. It's just basically like it just looks like a corkscrew. So I just tie I put my weight on my line. I put the hitch hitchhiker tie my line directly to to that and then you can put any kind of plastic you want on the back of that thing and not only is it completely weedless you just without a hook in there you get twice as many bites anyways because i think the bait just looks more natural doesn't have a big piece of steel hanging out of it it got, just goes through cover better uh i actually won that with a spinning rod and a zoom magnum finesse worm that was kind of nico rig but i just screw the hitchhiker into the the middle of the worm. It exactly looks exactly the same as the one I was fishing on tournament day. Just doesn't have a hook. Gotcha. Hmm. Yeah, that's I've, I've never like <clears throat> I've never really done that. You know, I've never bent the hooks over. If I pre-fish, I'm just going to catch a few and then leave, or catch one and leave. You know, something like that. I'll usually take usually what I do, but obviously you're the pro and I'm not. So, man. <laughs> But no, that's interesting. I don't, and I'm not sure. I know people will bend hooks over, you know, that I've talked to. But as far as the hitchhiker, that's completely no hook at all. That's a, a definitely a good tip. Definitely a good tip there. Heck yeah. Well, uh, let's see what else I got here. I did have a kind of a funny, not funny, but a specific uh, type of uh, travel question for you. So when you're pulling a bass boat and a trailer, you know, 20-something, 30-something hours to upstate New York, do you do anything different with tire pressure or do you run a certain type of, like, wheel, like wheel bearing grease? Uh, like what, how do you prep your trailer if you're going on a 25-, 30-hour drive? Like what do you do? Man, I do check my tire pressure. I run 50 pounds in my boat trailer, which is just recommended. Uh, knock on wood, I made it through this year without a flat, without any issues at all. Uh, but but the only advice on those long trips is just be prepared for anything. Back when I was had two vehicles on the road and a 36-foot fifth wheel and a, and a bass boat, like it was always something mainly on the, the camper trailer, you know, the fifth wheel that we pulled. I had blowouts. I had, you name it, problems. And everybody that still does that still has their share of problems. It's going to happen when you're pulling something that big and heavy, that that distance, especially the roads are not getting any better in this country. And neither is the traffic. It's getting worse, too. But uh, always just carry a spare. Always make sure you got tools on there. Tire, you know, plug kit. uh you know, perhaps extra, you know, hub, hub kit, something like that. I mean, our trailers are really good and I, I just don't have any issues. I've never had issues with, with the Marine master trailer, which is who built a trailer for Phoenix. Um, but, uh, but man, you can't, can't predict what's going to happen. And obviously, man, I get a new boat every year. So I'm fortunate. I don't have to worry about bald tires. I always have good tires on mine. And right. I always have a spare. I always carry a pump, patch kit, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and just planning a trip out. You know, I, I plan my route to avoid the big cities. 
you know, I'd last thing I want is to be in downtown Atlanta during rush hour and have a flat. But if, but I like I avoid Atlanta. I avoid a lot of it. Chicago. I won't drive to those two cities. I just I drive two hours around. Them. Most of the time, I still get there quicker because because you know nothing bad happens. But uh, and traveling at good times. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and that's something I always have extra grease with me because I had one. You know, I, I've always had older boats, but I uh, had a a wheel bearing go out on me and thankfully I was just a couple miles from the house. But so now, so now I'm very, you know, quick to check. I'll I'll even pull up to the stop sign at the end of our road and hop out and feel my hubs and make sure they're not warm. I'm like, okay, we're good. You know, nothing's getting hot, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, being prepared and that's I guess that's for any kind of fishing, you know, making sure you've got extras of everything in the boat while you're on the water, stuff in the truck. I mean that no, that makes a lot of sense. So Yeah, and it does I wish it Every year since I've been doing this, I try to refine everything even more, you know, carry less stuff and make sure I got everything I need, you know, but, but, you know, having a reliable vehicle and, and obviously for me getting a new boat and a, you know, trailer every year, it definitely helps, um, you know, gives me confidence, but there is definitely no guarantees. Things happen as much as we're on the road. I think last year it was not i think it may have been 47 days behind the wheel wow in a year that's a lot of time and those are not five hour days those are minimum eight i think the longest i drove this year without stopping was 21 hours and i I used to do that a lot in my earlier career and back when i was fishing boat tours i had to do it a bunch just because i didn't i was missing practice time but now i try to Usually about the first day, I'll do 12 and then try to get there the second day. I'll usually leave about two. I can get through most of the traffic areas before most people leave for work. And then, you know, I don't like driving. I can drive early in the morning, but if I drive all day and then it gets dark, I struggle. So I'd always try to stop before dark, plan my stops. Uh, you can get on Google Maps. You can you can I always make sure the hotel I book has got parking. I like a restaurant within walking distance, and it takes a little work. But if you plan the trip like that, try to make things as easy as possible for you. And then obviously, when I book a house, you can read the reviews. Uh, most of the places I stay, I've stayed before, so I know parking's good. I know it's convenient to ramps, and you know. Unfortunately, this year we're going. Our schedule is out, and not very many lakes on the schedule have I been to before. So may may struggle this year with some reservations, but we'll just have to cross that bridge when we get there. (laughs) Right. So, uh, so on the, on the hotel, this is a personal question for me Um, on the hotels. As far as one, I try to, if I ever have to travel to fish, like there, there is an electrical only state championship. I fished in a few times. It's like the top four from eight or nine clubs go together and fish but you know, and there's some travel involved with that sometimes. But as far as the hotel goes, and you know, you've you've got a few batteries in your boat for sure. Well, how do you go about charging them? Do you call ahead and say, "Hey, I've got a boat." Is there are there outside plugins close to the parking lot? Bring a drop cord. I mean, obviously you have to have a drop cord. But how do you go about charging batteries? You know, between you know between days of the event, if you're at a hotel, not a house. Man, that's that's a tough one. I, I mean, and and. I'd say almost all the time at the event, I'm at a house. So there's usually an outlet or you're there by yourself. You run one out a window. 
Now, you know, as well as I do, if you're staying at a hotel, you can call up the front desk. They don't even know what you're talking about. Half the time. <laughs> so yeah. you're like rolling the dice anytime you do that, unless it's at a hotel, like a lot of the hotels, the bigger chains, if it's right on a lake, they all have good parking and outlets. And they, if they do have that, they'll know about it. But if I've had them tell me, oh, yeah, we got outlets. And then you go, you show up there, they look at you like you got three heads, you know. And then, you know, you're kind of at their mercy then. You book this yeah. place, everything else is full. And there's, yeah, I've seen some creative stuff through the years. <laughs> or battery. Um, I know. Yeah, I'm sure you, I'm... there's a couple of guys carry little generators with them. Just the little, the smallest gas generator. I've seen guys use that before, just in that exact situation. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know that, you know, that it's a, like I run that powerful charge system on mine. Like I can fish three or four days. I don't want to fish tournament days with, with all those screens that's on our boats. Now it does pull a lot of juice out of your stuff. So I think getting it charged, even with the powerful thing is still important, but Man, I don't know. I mean, I would uh, houses are better and cheaper if you do your homework on a house. Uh, you know, hotels for me are strictly I just want one on the edge of the highway. You know, I'm not going to book a house for one night if I'm in the middle of a long road trip, but uh I'm right now I'm on Holiday Inn Express. They seem to be best. I used to be Hampton there a little sketchy now, but I don't have a you know hotel sponsor or anything so i pay most of them now are like 150 to 180 bucks a night it seems like yeah and that's and anytime we've had i've had to travel we usually buy we usually find a little cottage like a lot of the georgia state parks have cottages that are you know around one or 120 a night not bad you know and, and then you can you can figure out a a plug-in but yeah that's that's something that i know i'm sure like the guys who travel for the bassmaster opens or flw or the you know bfls i'm sure a lot of those guys stay in a hotel and it is probably three or four of them split in a room and that's pretty cheap that way but yeah that, and i'm sure there have been some very creative ways to charge batteries at those hotels but every year i always see somebody's extension cord being drugged behind their bass boat to the boat ramp so <laughs> as long as it's not me i have done that one time <laughs> yeah yeah that's something i try to always make a walk around the back because i've got in my bass in my electric only bass boat i think i've got nine batteries so you know a lot of weight but you know that's i've got plenty of capacity two for the front one i've got one for all my lights live well graphs and then i've got Two, two motors in the back and i've got four for one motor so it's like 224 volts in parallel and then you know two for the other motor so i've got nine batteries i've got wires going everywhere in my boat so before i leave I, usually the night before i'll go up there unplug everything make sure all the wire nothing's tangled up but yeah it looks it looks like a, a cobbled up mess but it gets the job done so yeah, I don't know with all them batteries. You might have to have special requirements for power. <laughs> yeah, well, that's an I've got, you know, I've got a splitter. And, it, and I don't use any, you know, high-powered chargers. I think mine are all battery maintainers, that kind of stuff, because I don't, I don't fish many two- or three-day events. So usually if I fish one day, I can let it charge for a full the full next day, something like that. So I think they pull, it's like two amps per bank. So I'm, I'm pulling, you know, probably 
between 20 and 30 amps as far as what it's pulling. So it's not, it's, I'm, I'm not pulling 100 amps. So I, I, I won't burn anything down, I hope. <laughs> but yeah. Are you got lithium batteries or? Not, not yet. I'm, uh, I may try to get a couple of, a couple of lithiums next year, but right now, actually what I'm using, it's old, like, either like a cell tower or a power, like a power supply backup system. So they're, some of them are a hundred amp hour and some of them are 133 amp hour batteries, but I buy them used, but they, they're all guaranteed to have like 90% of their life left. And I, I usually use them for two or three years and then I'll swap out slowly, you know, rotate through, buy new ones, but I can buy them for like, I can buy them for like 60 or $70 a pop. So I mean, they're, they're pretty inexpensive. So I've, I've got a, I feel like I'm doing a drug deal every time I go to buy batteries. I'm like, yeah, I gotta go be, meet my battery guy. <laughs> yeah yeah that's cool i i I would i don't know i'm old school i'm not a lithium fan so i would stick with what yeah the uh the technology is coming a long way but something that i I noticed we fish we start our tournaments in late january and as you know in georgia it could be below freezing and it or it could be you know in in the 60s but this year it may have been i forget that one of either this year or last year one of the guys who had just went to all lithium before the uh, before the tournament started, he couldn't get his motor to do anything. He had one of the nice electric outboards. I think it was like a 9.9 horse equivalent, 48 volt, 48 or 60 volt, and he had some nice lithium batteries. But you know, and, that, and that's one of the disclaimers that I've heard is if it's under a certain temperature, the lithiums won't work. So I feel like people they either have like a in the battery compartment, they have like a warmer or they'll put like a little light bulb in there the night before. So it warms them up or something, something like that. But yeah, that's, there's a lot of unknown and there's so many battery, so many companies out there. You don't know who to trust. I mean, there are definitely a few that are bigger and, you know, more well-known, but like you can go on Amazon and there's 50 different companies you never heard of. So. Yeah, it's still that way, but they, they've made a big push to lithium companies and there's, 20 new ones every year at ICAST. And I would say on like my tour, I would probably just guess there's 65 guys running lithium and 15 not. But, and look, I don't have a battery sponsor. I run AGM batteries. They're heavy. They're, they're expensive also. They're just almost expensive as a lithium battery, the one I run. But I have been like 10 years and I have not had a single issue with a battery. And I wow. challenge anybody any of the 65 guys on my tour that are running lithium batteries just tell me that you've been one season without a problem i haven't found a person yet that can tell me they've been a whole season without a problem yeah i mean that that's a testament right there i hear it but my my deal is is i we go places there is nothing you're not going to walmart because walmart's two hours away to get ever start like i just don't want problems and i could have problems but i knock on wood in 10 years, I've been running these batteries that I'm running now, not had a single issue with my battery. Wow. Yeah, and that, that right there is a testament. And like like you said, I mean, we've had only the last handful of years have we had guys swap over lithium. And more and more people are doing it, especially in the electric-only world, just because it cuts so much weight. Like They're like, okay, well, the weight reduction is going to be worth it. So like they, they, they gamble and go for it. But, I mean, it, yeah, pretty much not everybody that has them, but – 
every tra- tournament trail that I've talked to that has lithiums, you know, you hear a story about, oh, yeah, so-and-so had battery issues or he had one of his motors wasn't working or a graph went out. You know, some, something like that has happened with lithium. And it's just technology has come a long way, but it's not there yet. Yeah, I agree with you, man. I agree with you. It's it's. I look at the setups. I talk to the companies, and I've run them. I ran them one year early on. I think they're way better now than when I ran them, but I didn't make it through a single event and had problems. I put the batteries in another boat, had problems, and I haven't run them since. Um, and that's when I started running the batteries that I'm running now. Um, but, yeah, I talked all, like this, this year, and I'm not going to mention any names, but that several companies approached me at ICAST and I'm like, well, what do you suggest I run in here? And, you know, they're running two, two 12 volts for their one for their grass, one for their cranking. And then they run two thirty sixes, one on a switch and then one that their batteries is hooked up to. And I, and several companies recommended this same setup to me. And I'm like, well, why do you have, 236 volt batteries if they're not one of them just like in there hooked up to a switch he says well if that one doesn't you know goes out then you can operate the switch and i'm like we said there's not any problem so why would i need two batteries but that's what most of the guys are running five or six batteries in there and two like several batteries are just spares if one doesn't work so to me that just i've got four in my boat three trolling one cranking runs all my screens, my live scope, everything off that one cranking with the power pull charge. I don't have any issues. My volts do drop just a little bit by the end of the day. I wouldn't say my live scope picture is as good at six o'clock at night as it was at six in the morning, but it's still good. And it's right. only yeah, I mean, a couple points, you know, a couple of volts. Yeah. Goes I mean, you're up. right. Yeah. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it, I mean, keep it simple. That's, that's a lot of the, a lot of what fishing should be and what it is, but uh, yeah, man. Well, hey, it's getting late, uh, man. I appreciate you coming on. I think we've talked for almost a little little over an hour and a half. So, man, I've I've real I've truly enjoyed it. I really have. Um, thank you so much. On to we could talk. We could do a whole thing on just batteries because I, I I don't know. Yeah. If I got my opinions on. <laughs> yeah, well, heck yeah, we we need to do that. Well, I'll I'll reach back out to you this winter. Uh, you know, get. Get get let you get a little bit more of a rest. Are you are y'all done for the year on major league fishing? Uh, yeah, our regular season's over. Uh, I, well, I, I'm doing the team series event in a few weeks. I'll, I'll be going to Texas for that, and then if I advance, it'll be back in Florida for the championship. Which made it to the championship last year. Wheeler beat me, so you know, hopefully, hopefully, can get back to the championship in that and uh. I don't know. I've got a couple more TV shows, a couple dealer shows, trade shows, stuff like that. Next week, I'm going to actually probably drive right by you. I got to go to Pigeon Forge or Sevierville, Tennessee, for a Pittman Creek show. It's my next next little venture. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You'll be going right by us more than likely. But I'm up, I'm up in Delonica, so we're like 70 miles, do like straight at the end of 400, like Highway 19, 400. At the end of 400, we're we're right around there. So, but yeah, if you, uh, yeah, shoot me a text, give me a call, whatever. If you're around Delonga, Gainesville area and we'll, maybe we can meet up and fish or grab dinner, whatever, you know, take a break. Yeah, man. Sounds good. I'm always looking for an excuse to stop somewhere and eat. (laughs) All right. Sounds good, man. I appreciate it. All right, Eli. Good talking to you, man. Yes, sir. 
Thank you for listening to the Bucktails Podcast.